0: All right, welcome back to the Ottawa studios of Inside My Canoe Head. I am your host, Dr. D. Today we are going to talk about the apocalyptic thriller recently released on Netflix Leave the World Behind. So sit back, grab your favorite beverage, let's get at her. All right, thank you very much for joining us back here today. Listen, end of the week, nearing the end of the year, we have a great apocalyptic film that came out uh, on Netflix entitled Leave the World Behind. We're going to talk about that in detail. We are going to give you a ton of spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie... I would str- and you're interested in seeing the movie, I would strongly suggest you pause the podcast, zippy to doo da over to Netflix, fire that sucker on for two hours and 21 minutes, and wrap it up, come back, and listen to our discussion. So today, it's not about a pocket talk. It's about looking at the film, and what does it tell us about the state of preparedness? But I think more importantly, what does it tell us about the state of modern Western... Northern culture that exists in this world and some of the significant issues that it presents for the navigation and, and management of calamities and emergencies that come our way. So a little bit of background first. The uh, the movie was a creation and a written in 2020, a novel by Ruman Alam, uh, and it was the executive producers on this were the Obamas, Michelle and Barack Obama the former first family of the United States of America. This is their first foray into significant film. One of their uh, things that they started when they left politics was higher ground productions. So they were executive producers on this. They didn't write the story. They didn't write the script. They had significant inputs in the script and there's some things that are clearly uh, the irk and the pen of the former president. Uh, But that's important to understand and This novel takes place, uh, the novel itself and then the film, takes place in uh, both Long Island and the city of New York itself. And there are only seven characters in the movie. Um, And I think that's an important point and and important to understand because we're presented with seven characters, but each one of the characters, I'm going to argue, represents a current element of the U.S. society. So they're very, very well-crafted characters. Now, an overall assessment of the movie is it's slow as heck. It's a great hour and 45-minute film that's stretched out to two hours and 21 minutes. We see this a lot in Hollywood or in productions that they they think a longer movie is better, more impactful. It's slow. The pacing is somewhat difficult. Uh, Some reviewers have said it's a simplistic message. If you know me, you know I'm a fan of simplistic messages. I think people unnecessarily try to make things complex to make themselves look intelligent, and in fact, they achieve the opposite. This is a simplistic message, but I think it's framed when you look at it through that each of the characters are presenting a significant and important element of the United States society as it exists today, and then looking through those lenses, you see how the different elements of society react to a stimulus, the apocalypse, the ideas that are being brought forward in the film. And in the end, we're going to wrap up what I think about their scenario, etc. But I think that's less... Important people are spending far too much time navigating whether the society would really collapse because of these sets of scenarios, and I think if you look at that, you miss what this film brings. Right? I'm a human scientist, I study emergency preparedness through the lens of human behavior analysis, through looking at how human beings choose to respond to stimulus they're given and what that means. Right? For example, that's why I argue about the importance of social connections, social connectedness, and the strength of your social capital is far more important than the stockpiles of food in the basement. Right? Standard thinking would mean if I want to take care of my family, the most important thing I can do is stockpile. There's a thing I saw on um, a very you know hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube not too long ago video that it's entitled "What Your First Thousand Dollars Should Be Spent On as a Prepper." Right. And I'm sitting here going, well, that's great. And I understand why that's there, because that gets you views on YouTube. Right. I have one hundred and fifty eight videos and sixty nine subscribers, because what I'm saying is that that's probably not the right course of action. But I don't just think that. Right. I look at the evidence. The evidence tells us people who have had better post event outcomes are people that have stronger social connections and it has no correlation to the amount of crap in their basement, right? There's none. There's no correlation. Now, you're always going to find the one-off story. Well, my uncle survived for six months in the bush with no contact because he had stockpiles of food. Listen, we're talking population macro level, People have better outcomes from disasters and significant events as, as a singular reason tied to their social connectedness. So off that rant, back to the movie. So preparedness attitudes that exist in the United States of America. And I use the U.S. just because the film is resident there. But I think it's something that we can take across all different types and levels of. Of Western society, right? So this is just not America bleeding from its own self-inflicted wounds. This is the rest of us uh, on that same sinking ship. So first of all, look at Danny, uh, Danny, uh, the character played by Kevin Bacon, who's a uh, contractor, but he represents the prepper community. He takes care of his own, right? He takes the time to make sure that his family has the stockpiles, the lands, the food, the capability. Uh, And in the end, they come looking to him for medicine. Obviously, he has medicine. He has a stockpile of acetaminophen and other drugs, but he refuses initially to give it up because it's for him. It's just for him. But in the end, with a little bit of emotional parlay that goes back and forth, he breaks down and provides a bit of medication to one of the characters for his son another character who is ill as a result of some effect uh, that has happened in the movie and he does sit there and, and understand that you know I I did the work, right? I'm a prepper. I did the work. I spent the time and effort while the rest of you were gallivanting around, getting ready for the apocalypse. And then when it shows up at the front door, you have the audacity to come to my door and ask for my help. And you did sweet bleep all to get ready for this thing, right? That's the prepper attitude, that it's a divisive attitude. It's not all preppers, but it is part of the divisive attitude that you hear in the prepper community. Is that no? You're going to meet the end of my 12 gauge if you come to try if you try to come to my house to get the stuff because you were dumb enough not to prepare. I'm closing my door on you. That's a representative voice that you hear out of the prepper attitude. And the executive producers and the author of the book did a very good job of presenting that in Danny's character. But in the end, Danny's a good guy, right? He helps out in the end. He breaks down a little bit, but. The initial response is how it's constructed as a prepper community in the United States of America. Then we look at Farrah McKenzie as Rose, the young 13. I think she's 13 year old girl. She represents the generation that is freaking clueless, right? They just want their needs met throughout the entire movie. She's just trying to see the last episode of Friends. She's enamored with Friends because She has an exceptional difficulty dealing with the society around her, making her own friends, figuring out how to be successful in society. So she reverts back introverted into a TV series, which is all make-believe made-up stuff about how people relate. And she just wished she lived in a society like friends where she had friends like that. She doesn't, so she chooses to live in this fantasy world of friends, and no matter what's going on around her, what no matter what things are happening, she is very much grounded on simply getting her needs met. Be damned what is happening. Charlie Evans is Archie, the other kid, he, I think he's fifteen in the America. he he's very much a copy of his dad. Um character we'll get to in a minute. A demonstration of a generational loss of of personal responsibility, right? He's really just worried about his own stuff. He sees another character. He's sexually attracted to this character. He takes pictures of the character. He thinks about the character. um, He's doing something on his own about the character. Um, He is very much zeroed in. And then when he gets injured uh at a certain part throughout the movie it's a woe is me why is this happening to me somebody else help me type of attitude it's a very well acted piece please don't misunderstand me charlie evans does a very good job of playing this character but it's a representative of a lack of personal responsibility and a lack of uh generate of knowledge transfer from his father now his father character's clay is played by uh stalwart uh, Ethan Hawk. and this this is a standard left wing professor from the uh, coastal wonderful town, you know in New York who's blissfully unaware of the world behind us is basically the beautiful representation of what we call a preparedness labs incorporated here at inside my canoe head, the blissfully unaware level of society Uh, and throughout the movie. And when they get into a pretty calamitous interaction between Danny and a couple other characters, he expresses the fact that he can't do anything without a cell phone. He's completely inept without modern technology. He's basically incapable and is devoid himself of his human animalistic. I'm part of the environment. I'm personally responsible for taking care of myself. It's a representative of a section of society who absolutely requires a functioning modern society to go, needs the technology, needs the cell phone. And when it breaks down, utterly lost and emotionally confused, about what has happened and has an absolute confidence in the happiness and joy of everybody else in society. Very gregarious individual. So the character is grounded in the idea that people are good. People are great. Let's trust people. Everybody get along. We all live in this wonderful Shingra La type uh, society. The next iteration comes from uh, Mahila, I think is how you pronounce her name. She plays Ruth, a brilliant ad- actress. Um, and she's representative of the Attitude Generation, right? She's probably about 19 or 20 in the movie, I think. Uh, she presents this strong, abrasive, screw you type of attitude, whatever. We don't need to help people. Her and her father, who's one of the main characters, um, you know, they're basically... She, well, Ruth basically is that representative of that generation that says, screw you. Um, we're not here to help anybody else. Screw them. It's better off. Let's keep it for ourselves. Uh, but underneath, in reality, she's quite scared, right? She's quite uncertain. She has a lot of vulnerabilities. It, in, in the movie, her mother is missing and potentially presumed lost in the number of calamities that are occurring, and she's very worried, but she comes off as this brute abrasive exterior that doesn't get along with a female the adult female main character uh and and it's very just telling of the generation that is just aloof and angry and then we get to the two main characters um the gentleman gh who plays by Mahashala ali Oh, man, this this guy is an incredible actor. He's a brilliant individual, the character who grasps the reality of control as to what's going on. The character that he plays is a high-flying stockbroker or... Uh, money manager for for very, very wealthy clients. So he gets a bit of information and he's a bit reserved about that information and sharing it with the other characters. And he shares it at stages throughout the movie. So it's basically, listen, I know what's going on. He makes a couple of jokes about the cabal and then the Illuminati controlling a, a small group of people controlling the world but that he does get a bit of warning. He does get a bit of information. And he states in there that it's not that this small group of people control the world. It's that they get access to timely information. It's that if something bad is going to happen, like what happened in this movie, or a major conflict is going to happen, or a major government action is going to happen, that they just kind of get a heads up, right? So the uber-rich... The, the very rich people that live in very, you know, the billionaire class, for example, and the CEO class, they, they just get a bit of information that the rest of us don't do, don't get as a result of government actions. So he plays his character very, very well. And this idea of he wants to help everybody out, but he doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't know why it's going on. And it's very, very interesting that, uh his character is very very much um access to knowledge right and i'll give this other thing like there's there's one family a couple of houses over that uh, danny tells him uh had had a basically a bunker built underneath right uh the family in in the movie never made it from wherever they were back to their country home that had the bunker underneath which is another representative story underlying Uh, within the movie but the idea being is, is that he represents this character represents a class of people who have access to information the rich and affluent who have these places to go and it's representative of for example we know that almost everybody if not every executive in Silicon Valley has a bunker and this is not just a pocket talk we know this to be true through the companies that have built the bunkers. We know that the vast majority of rural land in some in one specific part of New Zealand has been bought up by Silicon Valley executives and bunkers have been built there, right? Private jet with their family from California straight to New Zealand in the time of calamities to ride out whatever it is in a bunker that they've paid for in a foreign country and not notably not in the United States of America. And there's a clear dichotomy that I'll get to in a minute between about that. The last main character is obviously played by uh, Julia Roberts as Amanda. She is the head, clearly the head of the family household. She is a distrusting individual. She, she represents racial overtones. She distrusts the idea that the black family who showed up could possibly actually own this big rich house in the country and throughout the movie as they stay they keep the black family in the basement but that's a representative of not racism but a representative of racial overtones and undertones that run through much of American society. It's an expression of distrust between different cultures that exist in the society. She is representative of the part of America, that is just knowingly angry at everything. They're pissed off about everything and everybody and every institution in this world, and they distrust everything that's going on. And they simply one off let's just get a weekend away in Long Island, away from all of this. I just need to get the heck out of here. Um, I'm up, I'm organizing, I don't sleep, I'm I'm constantly stressed out, and when people show up I distrust them. I don't believe them. I believe there's an alter um and and an alternate intent, etc. So that's kind of sums up the seven characters and what I think the seven different types of elements of US society that they represent. And then you can translate that to the rest of the western world. So setting the characters aside that set it up. There's a couple of ideas that I think are that run through this. There's a very clear distinction between city and rural. Uh, And, and throughout the movie is filmed on long Island, presumably long Island. And at periodic times throughout, they can look over at the city. And as you look through the city throughout the movie, you see different stages of breaking down, you know, things happening and in the end there's there's u.s government obviously aircraft bombing places in and and conducting strafing runs whatever it may be in new york so obviously the city is coming apart but there's beautiful landscape the the deer are running around uh we'll get to that in a minute but the, U- the rural society is portrayed as this beautiful, wonderful place to be. And heck, the power stays on. They're still making coffee in the coffee maker across a little bit of water for New York City that's getting bombed. Okay. There's very clear delineation in the movie expressing the idea that the cities are sick and the rural is healthy. That's part of the underlying things as well as There's a very clear uh, representation of elements of society like the Teslas that crash, right? So the theory and the one potential scenario that's brought in that underlines the movie is that some organization or some foreign power has used the Internet to cascadingly take down critical infrastructures. The first thing they take down is the Internet and communications element of sector of critical infrastructure so what that represents to everyone is a loss of information right it represents immediately people lose access to the ability to find out what the heck is going on and then you can see the reactions of each seven of the characters to the loss of information is very much representative of how the author portrays what the world will look like right the totally useless, blissfully unaware guy decides he's just going to jump in his car and drive into the closest town to try to find a newspaper or talk to another human, right? Some of them, the intelligent, smart, uh, affluent individual is going to his neighbor's house who he knows has a satellite phone, right? So satellite phones are meant to exist when everything else fails, you can still have solid communications through the use of satellites because the earthborne stuff is all shut down, right? Other people just get mad, twisted, and angry at the lock of information. So you can see how this cascading CI as it goes down demonstrates the struggle that society gets put into, right? And so one of the clear things that the main character, one of the main characters, talks about uh, that uh, that his rich buddies, his philanthropic people, talked about was the idea of how to take down a nation. Is that World War Three is not going to be tanks and planes and ships like World One and World War Two. The fight will be on a different level, right? World War Three, if it's not already on, will be a struggle about fractured societies. It'll be. If a society, the idea behind this brought forward is if the society is already fractured, if the society is dysfunctional, but somehow loosely held together by a system of critical infrastructure, if you take down that system of critical infrastructure, which this uh, scenario did, the fracture and the groupings will turn on each other. They'll blame each other for it. They'll come up with enemies. And this is representative when a drone drops a bunch of pamphlets in New York and they're dropped in Arabic, Death to America, with a bunch of Arabic messages on the back. But one of the characters says, hey, yeah, he was talking to a buddy out in California where this same thing is happening, but their pamphlets were in Korean. Right? So everybody's got an enemy. Everybody's got the boogeyman. And the idea, representative of this, is that whoever was trying to take down the US society was setting up a boogeyman. So out West, it's the Koreans, it's the North Koreans who are coming to kill everybody. On the East and probably Central America, it's the Arabs, it's the Muslims who are coming to kill everybody. So you feed on the fears. And the nonsensical ideas that exist within people, fear being the most important human emotion, and you provide them that, right? So then you set the conditions for society to tear itself apart. And the biggest, baddest faction will have a coup d'etat and will take over and start running the world. And this is the idea presented about the movie. You don't have to invade the United States of America to take it down. You don't have to fire a missile. You simply take away the ability for people to talk to each other. Through the loss of critical infrastructure, you take away their ability to del- rely on the 10 sectors of critical infrastructure to, to survive, and very, very quickly, societal's organization breaks down. There's a great individual and uh, who came up with a phrase, or he uses the paraphrase, that um, Man's ability to suppress violence is only correlated to their access to resources. And it simply means what keeps America safe and what keeps America calm is the fact that people have access to the necessary resources. That keeps men from being violent. That keeps our species from returning to our animalistic state of fighting for finite, scarce resources. So the argument that's presented in the movie is we bring that away. We take away the sectors of critical infrastructure. We put people in a position to where they are no longer have access to the necessary requirements and the resources they fight. And because they're factioned and because they're dysfunctional and because they're in tribal groups, The tribes start fighting and you start to see society break down. Now, there's another movie coming out. Uh, I don't know when it's coming out. It's coming out soon. The trailers are out for it. It's about civil war, you know, and it's about the united freedom of California and Texas against the U.S. government. It's a next movie about how the U.S. breaks down and the messages that's coming across. And this is the part that I think we all just need to sit down and think about is that we are very much setting our own society up for failure. We're setting our own society up for calamitous takedown. And I, and I had this conversation with somebody yesterday about, you know, here in Canada, we have a very, very insulated view of the world, right? Canada exists in the North America. We have the two largest anti-tank ditches in the world called the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, The Arctic is a horrible environment with no transportation and communication links, so you can't invade over the north. So Canada is insulated. We've never been invaded. The only thing that could invade us is the United States of America, and we're too difficult to manage. They control essentially what goes on in our country anyhow. So really, we have the U.S., the big bad brother to our south, and everything around us prevents anybody from... Invading us and controlling us and taking us over and occupying us and subjugating the population, right? That can't happen in Canada. Yes, the Western settlers did it to the to the First Nations that were here, but guess what? That's done in every freaking country in the world. What happened here is not different than what has happened in every other country. In fact, the fact that there's only ever been one conquering in Canada makes us incredibly unique because you go to Europe, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia, those countries have been conquered and occupied by different powers for thousands of years. People have been subjugated, The the fighting age men killed, the women and children enslaved. That's just normal cycle of humanity that happens every couple hundred of years. You know, why are the Russians so upset about protecting their borders? Well, the Swedes invaded them in the 1700s. Everybody has invaded and conquered and subjugated and controlled Russian and Slavic people for hundreds and hundreds of years. The same in Europe. Look how many times from the Roman Empire forward that parts of England, what we know now to be England, and France, and Belgium, and Germany, how many times that those have been occupied, conquered, and subjugated by other powers. That is an experience that doesn't exist here in Canada. So we have Canadians that are, in their uproar, upwards, but they're looking at the world through a lens that nobody else in the world can look through, right? Because nobody's going to come and occupy the city of Toronto, subjugate its population, and put them under the thumb of power. So they don't live with the threat that the rest of the world lives with, with actual occupation of an opposing army, right? So they live in this la-la land uh, here in Canada and a lot of places in North and and, and Southern America of where you don't actually live uh, in a world where you can be subjugated. So you live in this world where... All this information is necessary. We share information. Everybody knows we have a working system. Why can't everybody just get along? But you take that information away. You take away the access to resources. And I would argue, and the research argues, the only thing that keeps peace and calm in North American society is our access to resources. You start limiting people's access to resources. And this is a... Somebody wrote this uh, once, and and I disagree with most of what they said, so I'm going to leave the authors out. But they wrote that the reason food stamps... It's one of the key reasons why the United States of America remains a successful and modern functioning society. Not because you feed people, but you stop people from coming to take things that are not theirs, right? So as long as you give people barely enough sustenance to stay alive, remember alive in a modern Western sense, they'll they happy. They won't overthrow you, right? It's like the billionaire class knows that everybody's going to eventually come to them for pitchforks, which is why they need a bunker, because there's only a handful of them, right? But we keep our population just enough fed and just enough happy that it doesn't revolt. We haven't had a revolution in Canada since Canada was formed. We've had a couple in the 1800s, but America had a revolution, right, of people that stood up and they put it down. Uh, Most Western countries in Europe have had many, many different revolutions of where the population stood up, stormed the gates, and took back control of the country from their government. That doesn't exist here in Canada. In America, it's prevented right now. It might happen in some ideas, but it's prevented right now by access to resources. So it the movie basically represents and shows all the different states of preparedness that exist in America. It shows how close America is to teetering over the edge And it gives a scenario. It's not necessarily the scenario for societal collapse. And you know here in Inside My Canoe Head and Preparedness Labs Incorporated, we don't think, and I have no evidence that indicates to me that we have a societal collapse coming. Yes, 2020 is an exceptionally disruptive decade because it is our decade of change. The 1940s was the last one. They happen about every 70, 80 years in human history. You can trace that back to when we started communications on a global scale, which is right back into about the 1400s. Since then, about every 70 or 80 years, humanity reorganizes the structure of the world. The 2020s happens to be ours. It's well-documented. Um... It's not apocalyptic, it's not World War III, it's just every country is jockeying for position to see where they will sit for the next 70 or 80 years until we have another generational switch around. Um, Ray Dalio's great work on that, Peter Zion's another one. Uh, you can look up their stuff, it's, it's very, well, uh, very well written and very easy access. It's basically available free on YouTube. So we're going to wrap up this with just zeroing back to preparedness. What does the movie Leave the World Behind present to you and the idea of preparedness, you and your family's preparedness? What does this movie mean for you? It demonstrates that you have a personal responsibility to take care of your outcomes, right? That family that built the bunker Built a bunker under a house, but never got to it because whatever happened, happened, and they didn't have the ability to get back there. Um, You have a responsibility to develop a preparedness plan. As you can see how quickly the, the government is overwhelmed or orientated on a different problem. And at the individualistic level... You are likely to not receive any type of government assistance at the individualistic level, and you are therefore respond. You can see throughout the movie, as the pull back and forth happens within the film, the, the fragmentation, but eventually people come together and they aggregate and congregate. We're a gregarious species, which means as people to get together, you start to see, hey, When we're not on our own and we're working together, then as our community, as humanity has done since we climbed out of the trees hundreds of thousands of years ago, we work in a tribal sense, right? So... It's our modern conveniences and it's our modern communications and it's our modern elements of critical infrastructure that have taken away the necessity for our common social bonds to be. So the one takeaway from this movie and from our lessons on preparedness is the importance of relationships and the importance of building friend networks. Like, for example, and I'll use this one scene from the movie, when they go to the prepper's house, Danny, to try to get the medication for the injured character, the, the main character says, well, I thought we were friends, Danny. And he goes, yeah, but that was then. This is now. Now the apocalypse is on. I'm a prepper. I'm shutting the door. I prepared. You didn't prepare. And so you're on your own, right? That's they. They weren't really friends. They had a transactional relationship in that... Danny was the contractor who renovated the guy's house five years ago. So it's a transactional relationship. They weren't truly friends. They didn't truly have social connections. And this is the underlying thing for preparedness. It's, it's not about, uh, you know, the critical infrastructure is going down. Make sure you have a bunker with seven years of food in it. It's about the struggle of humanity emerges and success emerges with the strength of people. And we've seen that. You can go all the way back to the research that's been done on the Fukushima. The most recent stuff is on the Fukushima disaster in Japan. The parts of Japanese society that bounced back better, faster, and had more improved outcomes were those with strong social connections, not the ones with money. The evidence does not Tell you that money is an element of preparedness. I'll fight this tooth and nail with anyone who wants to argue with me. Having money does not make you prepared, it does not facilitate preparedness because that is believing that you can acquire things that will make you prepared. That may be something you believe, but the evidence tells us otherwise. So hopefully you enjoyed our little analysis here of Leave the World Behind. It's worth watching through the lens of understanding humanity. Obviously, if you've listened now, you've you you you've got a lot of the points that are in it. But if you haven't seen it, it's worth watching. It's a one hour and 45 minute movie stretched into two hours and 21 minutes. Um I think it got about a 6.8 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes and a weighted average score of about 6.7. So yeah, I mean, there's great actors in it. Absolutely fantastic portrayals, which is probably part of the reason why the movie is reasonably successful. Uh, I'm looking forward to read the book. I'm a book guy. And as an author, I have a couple of books available for sale on Amazon. Drop over to preparednesslabs.ca. All the links are there. Support authors. If you like the movie, go find the original book, buy it, read it, cherish it, hand it off to somebody else. Support authors we're worth it. So thank you very much for taking the time to joining us this week on Inside My Canoe Head. We are wrapping up 2023 with a couple of more episodes, and then we're going to have an awesome, epic, elongated episode on how to do 2024. We've had a precursor one this month. We got the big one coming up at the end of the year. So take care, stay safe, and enjoy your freaking weekend.